You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, your weekly peek behind the scenes of the mid-Missouri arts community. My name is Diana Moxon. My guest today is no stranger to all the arts organisations in Colombia. Since October 2017, she has been at the helm of the Office of Cultural Affairs, overseeing the department's programmes and events, managing the non-profit arts funding process, organising the annual Columbia Values Diversity Celebration, coordinating the Traffic Box Art Programme and the City's Public Art Programme, directing the annual celebration of the arts party and its poster contest and liaising with local and regional partners to make sure the arts are well supported in Colombia. And if that wasn't enough, she is also on the board for the Missouri Association of Community Arts Agencies and Kansas City-based Heritage Philharmonic. And she's a classically trained pianist and an artist. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thank (laughs) you. Sarah Dresser. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank you, Diana. (laughs) Well, you have so much going on in your life. It's amazing. Was there ever a time in your life when you thought maybe the arts were not for you? No, I don't think that thought has really ever occurred to me. So (laughs) it's always been a part of my life and something I've enjoyed and so happy that I've been able to make my career supporting the arts as well. Now, you started your college life getting a Bachelor of Science in Music Performance at William Jewell before you swerved into nonprofit management and arts administration. So what turned you away from the performance track? I think, you know, my senior year of college, I was going through that crisis of what's next? Do I want to be a performer? Do I want to be locking myself in a practice room for eight hours a day? It's a very isolated life sometimes when you're um, having to practice so much. And I thankfully had a lot of really great mentors who threw some questions out. Well, what about arts administration? What about working uh, with arts organizations? You know, I'm a very social person. That's one of my strengths. Uh, So I think that those questions kind of helped me shift gears a little bit to go into the administrative side of things. So that's that from my senior year going off into the real world. I took a lot of what I learned as a music performer, you know, the focus that you have to have. You can't just show up concert day and whip out <laughs> your your sonata on the keys. You really have to spend a lot of time uh, refining and practicing. Um, and so I've, I've taken those skills into my career with the arts. So, yeah. Do you still perform anywhere? Yes, I do. So I am part of a local ensemble called the MU Choral Union. It is a university ensemble, but they merge community members with the university students. And that is every semester. You don't have to audition for that. And so I've really enjoyed getting back on the stage. We usually do one or two big choral works per semester. So it's not just lots of little pieces. You get to really dive in and uh, spend a lot of time with, with some pieces. This last semester we did Mozart's Requiem, which was really great opportunity and we performed on Missouri Theater stage so it's very it's very fun for me to continue that music uh, but that's singing that's not that's singing not playing, playing. Piano. so I I'm not I currently just kind of play for fun down in my basement but on stage I'm I'm more of the singer now do you ever get involved with local theater groups doing piano for musicals I haven't no and that, are you available oh I don't want to put myself too much out there but I'm already very busy as you read at the beginning of the show I would say and that that definitely was not one of my strengths there, 
some people can just sit down and sight read in a company, no problem. That was not so much my strong suit as a student. So I will leave that up to some of the experts in that area. Do you write music? I, you know, I've dabbled. I kind of self-taught some guitar back in my college days. And of course, you know, as a music student, I took my fair share of arranging and composition classes. So, you know, I've, I've kind of had some fun with that over the years, but we can't go out and buy a CD of Sarah Dresser music. No, no, no original compositions out there on the on the web or anything. So, <laughs> so having the vantage point mm-hmm. in your current job of helping to advise and fund so many nonprofit arts organizations, what do you see as the biggest hurdle for arts administrators at the local level? The local, you know, there's so many people kind of, I like to call it the kind of accidental arts administrator. A lot of community members might have been on a board of directors because they love that organization. Um, A lot of our organizations are volunteer run. I'd say only kind of a, a, you know, maybe 50% or less of our nonprofits have the capacity for full-time paid staff. Some might just have part-time administrators. So there's a lot of groups that are dependent on their skilled volunteers, and they might not have that robust background of kind of knowledge and skills. So our office tries to provide some of those resources to these organizations in technical assistance, cap- capacity building. We're able to meet with people one-on-one, um, able to connect them with maybe some of the resources that uh, would help them if they're thinking about board development or fund development or how do I have a more formalized marketing plan that isn't just you know Facebook posts. So I think a lot of the capacity... That's that's what I think probably a, a big hurdle for for organizations. How to, to get. find the money and how to allocate right, the spending exactly, of it. and and using your uh, skilled people, whether they're paid or unpaid. And looking at wider, when you've mm-hmm. been to conferences or you've talked to people at a national level, what are some of the challenges that people at a regional and national mm-hmm. level are facing that maybe is a little bigger than what we're looking at locally? Um, and I think this would be a local challenge as well, but a lot of it is access and getting your programs um, and reaching the people you're trying to to get your programs to. So is that transportation issue? Is it a cost issue? Are you not even in front of the right people who you're trying to serve? And how do you, you know, have those conversations and making sure that the community that maybe you're trying to reach is actually receptive to what you're trying to do? That was a, I was just at the Americans for the Arts annual convention. It was in Minneapolis this year, and I sat in on a session that was interesting talking about strategic partnerships and complex relationships. And one of the things that came up was, you know, you might have this mission in this organization, we're going to serve this neighborhood, this group of people, but unless you're actually having those conversations and having the buy-in from those community members, your program might not work. So I think that is a challenge to looping in the people who you want to be serving and then trying to address those issues of access like okay well how how are we going to have them involved do they need to travel to us do we need to travel to them is there scholarships if it's a paid kind of program so so those are kind of interesting conversations to have and the the answer is going to be different depending on where you live and who you are i used to think it was very difficult to work out the marketing strategy when it's such a diverse market mm-hmm. or a diverse 
society these days mm-hmm. so you have some people that are only going to see the news on the television mm-hmm. some people that are only going to read Facebook some people that are, aren't going to pay attention unless it's on Twitter and some people who don't want to reply unless you've written them a handwritten thank you note so how do you if you're a small non-profit and you are doing everything you're the accountant the toilet cleaner the marketing person the volunteer <laughs> coordinator if you're doing everything and then every tranche of your potential members or audience wants to be communicated with a different way mm-hmm. how do you reach every And also some people just don't respond to any media these days. Right. And I I think it's very easy to become overwhelmed and as an organization say, well, I want to reach everyone and the entire population of Columbia. And that you're I think you're already setting yourself up to fail if that's your goal. So we just I just sat in on outreach and marketing workshop that we provided. Um, So I'm going to try to summarize what I've learned just a week ago. But I think digesting it down into small, small achievable goals and really focusing who you're trying to target. So I think one of the things is starting with who you already know, who is already, say you have a theater program that has school-aged children that is, they're your participants, um, but you also do shows for adults and families. So who do you already know? Maybe the parents of the kids who are already in your programs. How can you reach those people through the communication paths you already have. Maybe it is you're a music organization and you want to target recent Mizzou music grads to become your attendees. So how do you already have their information? Can you can you get them that way? So, you know, really breaking it down into first of all who you're trying to target. And then think about well how then does that specific group most likely are they going to be able to be reached? Is it through they get an email or do they want a printed piece of mail is it uh, you have to really get them through kind of word of mouth and your ambassadors for your organization to connect them because there are they're also like attending be there in a book club circuit and so you get those book club folks to help bring them to your literary festival so i think it is really first starting with very very specific on who you're trying to target and then piecing together okay how do we reach those people because everybody wants to reach everybody that's the problem so exactly. it's difficult it's got to think about that and that's target why, audience that's why board members are so important because they do become the ambassadors they are out there having conversations all day i had a board member once who said she felt her job was every day she would have a conversation with somebody that mentioned the columbia art league it might be the <laughs> checkout person at gerbs or it might be somebody she talks to at a bar or someone she meets in the street but she would have one conversation a day where she said oh hey have you been to the Columbia Art League lately or did you know there's a new show on at the Art League or she would say you know just have a conversation and that was great I think that you bring up a really good point about you know who then is on your board if you have the same type of people on your board that you're not doing yourself as good a service as if you diversify if you have people from all different ages and backgrounds and different networks and different professional backgrounds and they can all be your ambassadors and that will widen your net I always felt like public arts funding was a little bit mercurial as it is prey to political wins. And Mm -hmm. when it's there, it's great. But as an arts administrator, you should never rely on it. I think there was a year back in the 1990s when the Missouri Arts Council got zero funding from the state, which, of course, has a huge trickle down Mm -hmm. effect to organizations like the Office of Cultural Affairs and the Columbia Art League and all the nonprofits they fund. So what advice do you give to new arts organizations about funding mechanisms and how to have a varied basket of income streams. Right. So definitely it's always 
a good rule of thumb to maybe not put all of your eggs in one basket. So if you're heavily reliant on grants or grant funding or public funding year to year, if you talk about Missouri Arts Council, yeah, maybe there'll be a change of heart at the state legislature and they won't have any funding for Missouri Arts Council, but if that's, you know, 50% of your operating budget, then you will find yourself in a really hard situation. So definitely diversifying grants are great, but I would err on the side of, you know, maybe not more than 50% of your operating revenue, individual donations. I think that that can really continue to build a strong base because those are likely fellow community members who really believe in your organization. You have that local, usually local connection, whether it be um, individual support or corporate support. Yeah, don't be afraid to to ask for funding um, and be specific because if you don't ask, you won't get any <laughs> go get anything. You actually have to make the ask. Um, some people are really scared about doing that, but uh, I think most people are really scared about right. doing that. So, but you know, kind of repeating that. Well, if I don't ask or tell them what they can give, no one's just going to come in and most of the time just hand you a big check. So, yeah, and I think our office too is we're always here as a resource to. Every organization is different. They might have the capacity to apply for different things. Not every group is the, you know, right size to maybe go after a national endowment for the arts, but they might be for Missouri Arts Council, and they have a variety of different programs, whether it be annual funding or an express grant. So there's there's lots of different kind of levels of, of funding out there that we're happy as a as our office to counsel organizations through that you know and think through some ideas that they might they might be very new and not know what's out there um, and not know what options they have available the flow of the money mm-hmm. from the top down is a seemingly opaque process so it all starts i guess with the purse of the office of management and budget and funds are allocated to the national endowment for the arts mm-hmm. and so to start with a little perspective if we look back at the national endowment for the arts 2019 appropriation, it was $155 million, which constitutes around 0.004% of the federal budget. Right. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny. And this year, over $107 million was granted to all 50 states, plus Puerto Rico and the American territories like Guam and American Samoa. And 40% of the National Endowment for the Arts money goes to state and regional partnerships, and that's by law. So in 2019, that added up to $51,456,000. It was divided into 64 awards, of which $737,200 went to the Missouri Arts Council. But as well as the Missouri Arts Council money, around $2 million extra dollars went straight to organizations like the Ragtech Film Society and the Missouri Folklore Program. So from this giant federal pot and the smaller state pot, mm-hmm. how does the Office of Cultural Affairs receive its funding? How does it tie into that chain, that trickle down of money? Right. So there's a, yeah, it's your brain kind of has to take a moment to digest that. Um, <laughs> It's like a waterfall. It's a waterfall. (laughs) And it's not necessarily as direct as, you know, NEA provides Missouri Arts Council money. They provide OCA money, and it goes to the same types of things. So our office does receive Missouri Arts Council funding, um, but it is for various kind of community arts programs that our office does. You know, we help with Family Fun Fest, the technical workshop, some of the traffic box art 
and partners in education programs. So we have the projects that we have applied for that Missouri Arts Council funds. But then we also do our own funding program that is through our um, annual budget is kind of where those funds come from, as well as uh, a distribution from the Columbia Arts Fund. So it's not necessarily the Missouri Arts Council gives us funding that we then go out and fund other organizations. It's They do give us funding, but where we fund others is is separate from, from that equation, if you will. So they're supporting us, but the money that we get isn't going out to to that funding. If they don't give you a general pot of money and say, spend it how you will. Right. You and have to apply for the funding right. from them in the same way that an organization mm-hmm. has to apply for the funding right. from you and specify. Right. And I, I would say across the board, you know, on the organization level, organizations that apply to both Missouri Arts Council and NEA, as well as Office of Cultural Affairs, um, all of that is primarily project-based funding. You're applying for specific projects. Uh, It's not going to be general operating support that any of us are just giving giving to organizations. It is very project-specific. Reporting on how did your project go and how many people attended and what was the impact is usually um, questions that uh, people have to answer after they have spent the money. (laughs) Right. So the National Endowment for the Arts provides 13.4% of the Missouri Arts Council budget. How much of the OCA budget comes from the Missouri Arts Council? Um, So we, over the past couple years, have just been receiving about $14,000 from Missouri Arts Council. Um, Our budget is just under $500,000. So if you do the math on that, it's... Not you know, much, but couple, pretty small. Pretty small. <laughs> and then you 2%. Get, <laughs> and then you get allocated money from the city fund every year. And right. So that's about 100000 Right. So of our total budget, and we are a general fund department, um, 100000 of that is for our annual arts funding. So that goes out to 501c3 nonprofit arts organization. If you're in one of those eligible groups, you're able to apply through our annual funding process. Um, but then we're also able to now augment that 100000 through the Columbia Arts Fund, which is an arts endowment fund at the Community Foundation of Central Missouri. So it's separate from our city budget. We've been growing that over the years. And now we're able each year to make a distribution to add on to that 100000 So we have a little bit more uh, to give out to the community each year. On the NEA's website, mm-hmm. you can see exactly which organizations mm-hmm. receive funds, how much they receive, and for what projects. So it's very transparent. Mm-hmm. You can also see what each state agency receives. And so I, I don't know if you're going to know the answer to this. And mm-hmm. hopefully Michael Donovan from the Missouri Arts <laughs> Council will be on the show later in the summer. But Missouri ranks 12th overall in terms of total money coming into the state from the NEA. So mm-hmm. total 12 out of, out of all the states, mm-hmm. which is great. But we only rank 31st in terms of what money goes to the state agency. So mm-hmm. we get 2.7 million overall that comes into the state, but only 737,000 goes to the Missouri Arts Council. The rest of it is given directly to organizations. Right. So, and, and we are the 18th most popular state. So I always thought that the NEA state agency funding was linked to population, but I, I got all nerdy this week and mm-hmm. I went through all of the numbers and state population numbers and it really doesn't tally right. at all. So what is the discrepancy? Why do we why are we twelfth overall for money coming into Missouri, but only thirty first overall for what the state agency gets? What what games are they playing or what hoops do they have to jump through 
to get that NEA money. Right. And I really do not know the answer to that. Yeah, it's a so, bit above the pay grade. I know. <laughs> that's, that's uh, yeah, but I do think Michael Donovan from Missouri Arts Council would hopefully be able to answer that question. Right. But that's an interesting point. And it, you know, I've, I've looked at compared Missouri to some other states on their, you know, level of funding they get from the NEA. And it, it is kind of interesting to say, well, how come Minnesota gets, you know, so much more than Missouri? And what do they got going on? And, you know, maybe in their state arts council budget is huge. So it's, it is interesting to kind of make that comparison and think, well, what could we do better in Missouri to right. kind of up that a little bit. Now, a lot of the money, over a million dollars in Missouri, comes in to the Mid-America Arts Alliance, which is kind of a regional mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. I, and I never applied for funding from the Mid-America mm-hmm. Arts Alliance. Is that open for funding requests in the same way that the Missouri Arts Council is? And I've perused their programs and their websites, in, and I'd have to go back and look. I think... A handful of what they do it's very maybe artist and individual specific type of things and I think they they really support artists on projects and on capacity I think there might be some organizational applications as well but it's it's I think it's differentiating itself from like the Missouri Arts Council and some of the other state agencies in the region so they aren't kind of repeating the same kind of process they are a little bit more specific on their funding requests well no surprise the number one funded state is is new york they receive 15 million over 15 million dollars but then they have 519 projects or organizations Mm -hmm. that are served which is so much more the next one i think is california and they have 303 projects and they receive 8.5 million and it it goes down from from there i think the bottom of the list is iowa unfortunately receives the least money overall at seven hundred nine thousand dollars, but the least funded state agency is kansas so we are surrounded by states or at least some states Mm -hmm. that are are doing way worse than missouri so we're doing we're doing pretty well. We're say really we're good. 12th on the funding list right. overall from the NEA. Let's have a little musical interlude. I thought we'd break up today's chat with some music from shows that are going on around Columbia or else they're coming up pretty soon. So first up is a shout out to the Full Monty, which is on at the Maples Rep Theatre in Macon and that's on through July the 7th. And we're going to listen to a song called Let It Go, sung here by the original Broadway Ensemble. Did I capture your imagination? Did I break you down, make you smile? It's a serious little situation. Why don't we loosen up and dance a while? You need a loose lip lover with a heart of honey. You need a sex cadet when duty calls. Show me all your bare-faced intact I want to see our shadows bouncing off the wall Let it go, let it go Loosen up, yeah, let it go Let it go, let it go It's all right Let it go, let it go Shake it up 
think you're ready. Just let the music be the master. I got a whammy bar on the brown guitar. Can't play me like Stratocaster. Because here I am, and baby, there you are. I'm a rocket boy with a touch like silver. mind if you show me yours Come on And that was Let It Go from the Full Monty from the original Broadway cast recording. You can see the Full Monty at Maples Rep Theatre in Macon until July the 7th. We're going to take a short break for some PSAs and we'll be right back. Don't wander off. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. And if you are just joining us, my guest this week is Sarah Dresser, the manager of Columbia's Office of Cultural Affairs. Sarah, there are a plethora of great statistics that powerfully show the exponential factor of a dollar spent on the arts. At a national level, $1 of national endowment for the arts direct funding leverages up to $9 in private and other public funds, pulling in an estimated additional $500 million in matching support. In 2015, Columbia was one of 341 communities nationwide to take part in Arts and Economic Prosperity Survey coordinated by Americans for the Arts. So tell us what kind of numbers you have from that survey about how arts funding is able to leverage dollars at a local level and what kind of statistics you found out. Right. So we were very happy. This was the first time City of Columbia participated in this study, along with, like you said, over 340 other communities across the country. And, you know, we wanted to look at, okay, so there's the arts in Columbia, but what kind of impact are they having on the city as a whole? We surveyed or we worked with um, about 30 of our nonprofit arts agencies um, over the course of 
2016, um, getting their financial numbers, and we also attended many different events and had audience intercept surveys. So we had over 800 of those come in. So I think that they're kind of conservative on the numbers. So imagine I'm imagining they're much higher than this. I want to participate again and really, really dig in. But over 14.7 million dollars in total direct expenditures back into the Columbia economy because of arts related events throughout the city. So you're thinking, you know, people go out to attend a concert performance on top of what they pay for admission to the concert. They're also maybe going out to dinner beforehand. They're pay, paying a babysitter. They're paying for parking. All the things that they're doing to spend money in the community just around that particular arts event. We're also seeing that if you're coming from outside of Columbia, you're likely to spend twice as much money as a person who is local. Maybe you're staying in a hotel, you came in for a festival, um, you're making a whole day of it because you want to go to Columbia Mall and you know go buy some gifts at the downtown local shops and maybe buy some art when you're stopping in at Columbia Art League on the way to um, whatever brought you into town. So, What does outside the community mean? Does it mean beyond Boone County or a certain distance from Columbia? They, I believe on the survey it was if you were a resident outside of Boone County. So okay. a non-local um, and they put in their zip code as to what that was. Yeah, so we're seeing that you want to really kind of get those tourists to come in because they're going to be spending more money here. And that $14.7 million mm-hmm. was is $9.2 million direct spending by arts and cultural organizations and right. $5.6 million in event-related expenditures. But that fourteen point seven does not include any admission price. Is that correct? Correct. It's additional spending. Exactly. And when you're talking about, you know, the arts organizations themselves, they are employing people. They are purchasing supplies to build their sets, have their costumes, pay the light technician. So the arts organizations themselves are an economic driver here in Columbia, um, in addition to that, the audience spending that that is also generating revenue. And what was the number on how many jobs were created? So we found that 600 59 full-time equivalent jobs were supported by arts activities. And also they generated 1.3 million in local and state government revenue. So that's taxes right. that, that um, the arts provide. Exactly. So like, even though the Columbia Art League is a not-for-profit, we still pay tax on anything that we sell, which maybe we shouldn't be doing, but apparently it's lost in the midst of time. Right. We I still say we. They shouldn't be doing, but <laughs> it's very difficult to change it. Once you are on the state's list as a, right. a tax-paying organization. Right. Exactly. It's to get off. Right. <laughs> and of course, the numbers that you have there mm-hmm. are for f- not-for-profit mm-hmm. entities only. So we're not including people like Sega Browdis Gallery or the Blue Note or Roots and Blues. All of those are for-profit events, and that is not included in the economic right. activity that generated. Was, that was not included. So if you think of especially like Roots and Blues Festival or the, the Blue Note, who has you know hundreds of shows per year... If you kind of imagine all of those that were not included in the study, it, you know, it, it's for sure through the roof on on that economic impact. Um, one of the other things that might not have been on your sheet that I thought was really interesting, one of the questions uh, that audience members were asked were, if this arts event were not happening in Columbia, would you travel outside the community to seek out a similar event? And about half of those who responded said yes. So I think that's really important on 
how we can support our arts agencies locally because they're going to go to another city to support that community if it wasn't offered here. So I thought that was kind of compelling right. uh, to, to see that, that audience response. One question that I suspect comes up regularly, mostly from people who are not interested in the arts, is why can't private giving be the sole supporter of the arts? Why do we have to use public money for it? And, you know, I think that you what you shared there earlier about the NEA, like how much a dollar then leverages other dollars. And there's also been studies on if you were to rely solely on private private giving, you know, I think it's very optimistic to think, yeah, people will just show up and they'll support it. And the data shows that people won't just step up to fill that gap. And it's also very disproportionate for urban areas. So if you didn't Correct. have to, uh, public giving, then rural areas would really suffer. Would really suffer, exactly. They're the kind of underserved communities. Um, they, they more than others um, need that public support to then also help leverage the other support that they're able to get in that area. So one of the roles of the Office of Cultural Affairs is the awarding of grants to local non-profit arts organizations. And in fiscal year 2019, your office awarded a total of Mm -hmm. $110,500 to 28 agencies. So let's let's look at how how that happens. Mm -hmm. They can all apply for a piece of that pie, but how do you decide how the funding is allocated? Right. So in February of every year, we open up the applications. So if you are an eligible organization, you have to be a 501c3, nonprofit, and an arts-specific organization. And we define that as at least 75% of your operations are arts-related. Um, so there's you know, a lot of other types of nonprofits that do some arts programming, but if that's not your primary focus, um, you would not be eligible for um, to be the main lead applicant on our funding applications. They submit them to our office, and we have a Commission on Cultural Affairs that is made up of 12 community members, and they serve as our panel. Um, they read all of the applications. We've hovered right in the high 20s so we haven't split it up into different into different groups as of yet so pretty much unless you have a conflict of interest as a commissioner you are reading all 28 29 applications that's the month of may is very busy for them they put in a lot of volunteer hours it's a lot of reading a lot of reading and we've tried to streamline i heard that this year you know we've re- we've kind of restructured some of the questions and it was a little easier to digest as the feedback i got um but they they have a scoring rubric so it's very mathematical on kind of what they're looking for with the evaluation criteria so they uh, our commission reads reviews scores all of the applications and then our office sorts through that data to make it presentable and then we have two different funding meetings our june meeting is more of the the group has the opportunity to discuss each application um, make any changes to the scores and then in our july meeting um, they ratify those scores and then we've determined through a mathematical formula based on how much funding we have available that year and um, the request times the average score for each application that gets determined how um, much funding each each group would get. Well, no, you can't randomly just ask for any amount of money that you want. Right. So <laughs> there's a cap. There is a cap. Which is $7,500. Right. So the maximum request is $7,500. Or 
if 25% of your previous year revenue, so let's say you're you're a relatively small organization. Um, you last year you brought in only ten thousand dollars. The maximum you'd be able to request would be twenty five hundred dollars. Um, so there is kind of a, a, a sliding scale there on the on the max you are based on revenue as well. And you can't just apply for city funding and not do anything else. Everything has to be matched. So you, if you're asking right. for seven thousand five hundred, you have to prove that you have seven thousand five hundred from other sources to Correct. match that money. Correct. Right. So in your budget that you provide, you have to show where the other revenue would be coming in, whether that be individual contributions, other uh, grant funding, other in-kind funding. We we count that towards the match as well. So yes, you have to show your one-to-one match for the request for your project. Now, as Columbia has grown, mm-hmm. so too have the number of arts organizations. Right. So where 15 years ago, there may have been just 15 or 18 agencies applying for pretty much the same funding, maybe around mm-hmm. 90, 95,000. This year, there are 28, but there hasn't really been a correlation in the funding increase. Right. So where do we go from here? How do we bring more money in to pay to provide funds for all these additional arts agencies right. that we're so lucky to grow here right. in Columbia. Well, and yeah, so since my time with the office, uh, a little over seven years, I think there was about 19 applications that came in. So now we've grown that to 10 additional groups in the last seven years. So that's, yeah, it's it's going up from here. I think we've seen that our, our community supports nonprofit arts agencies. I expect that number to grow. But that is... The primary reason why the Columbia Arts Fund was created to be a perpetual revenue source to support our local arts agencies. So the Columbia Arts Fund is an endowment fund. It was created in 2012, and it has grown. We're a little over $250,000 to date. And just in the last couple of years, it's grown enough to be able to augment our annual budgeted funding. So I think that that's one of the ways that we are helping to uh, address that issue of you know requests continue to go up. We continue to get more ap- applicants. Um, we want to be able to support these groups as much as we can. So kind of our, our main goal with that is to continue to grow the endowment year over year um, through, through a variety of different ways. And then each year we'll be able to kind of increase that distribution that we're able to to give out. So, you know, the hope would be in, I don't know how many years it would take, but, you know, it's in the millions of dollars. And, you know, the max we could pull out each year is 5%. So you can just see that that number continue to grow up. So we're definitely in that growth phase right now for the, for the uh, Columbia Arts Fund. When your predecessor first came to Columbia, JJ Musgrove, when we had our first meeting, we talked about the Community Arts Fund. And I said I had a bit of an issue with it. I think it's great if you're pulling in money from people who would otherwise not give. But as an organization, Mm -hmm. I don't want another entity coming between me and my donors. So if I have a donor that's going to give $500 and suddenly thinks, well, I'll divert, I'll swerve Mm -hmm. that money into the community fund, as an organization, I lose that direct contact with my donor and I lose $500. And yes, maybe down the line Mm -hmm. in 20 years there'll be a benefit for you know more organizations but on a on an annual basis it can make me lose out so how how do you get around that how do you counter that right and i think it is about the education of understanding you know when you support the arts fund it's not necessarily replacing that annual support that you should continue to be giving to our local arts agencies um they're they're 
two different things because you know five hundred dollars in to us is not going to just go out five hundred dollars to that works organization that you've always supported. Um, it is meant to grow over time and support all these agencies over time. So it's a it's a it's a little bit of a different way of thinking of things. And I I think you know our goal is to continue to try to educate donors on the difference. And it's a endowment giving is a definitely a very different framework of giving than your annual support to these organizations. And we want to be very supportive of, we we don't want to be diverting donors from our arts agencies. No, they need you to continue to support them. But here's another way to leave a legacy for the arts in Columbia, thinking about planned gifts in the future, or you're in the place to make a, a significant uh, one-time gift. So um, it's really about that education and understanding kind of the difference and the mechanism for how the fund is used. Let's have another little musical interlude. It is the last weekend at Columbia Entertainment Company for their fabulous production of the musical comedy Hairspray. If you haven't seen it yet, do whatever you can to get a ticket this weekend as it is a stellar cast and production. I've seen it twice. Uh, we're going to listen to the opening number from the show. It's called Good Morning Baltimore from the NBC television event original soundtrack sung here by Maddie Balio and the ensemble.
And that was Good Morning Baltimore from the NBC television event soundtrack featuring Maddie Bailio and the ensemble. And you can see Hairspray at Columbia Entertainment Company, but there are only three performances left this weekend. I'm delighted to have Sarah Dresser, the manager of the Office of Cultural Affairs, in the studio with me for the entirety of this week's show. And we are already getting close to running out of time. So as well as funding and providing advice for the many organisations in Columbia, the Office of Cultural Affairs also organises events and there is a big one coming up on August the 29th, the annual Celebration of the Arts. Tell us about that, Sarah. Right. So we're very excited for this year's event. Um, it is a fundraiser for the Columbia Arts Fund. Um, and it's also a celebration where we unveil our annual commemorative poster. Um, it's a secret until then, but I can share that the artist this year will be Kate Gray. Um, she is very excited. And um, I think... She's people, crazy excited. She's crazy excited. And she, <laughs> I, I think people will really enjoy the piece that is the poster. Um, so the details on that, it is August 29th, but this is a Thursday, 6 to 9 p.m. It is going to be at the new Atrium on 10th, which is a new event space by Blue on the corner of 10th and Walnut. So if you see... If you drive by, you're like, what's going What's going on there? A lot of, you know, workers outside. Well, it's going to be an awesome new kind of industrial event space. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited for to be one of the very first events in there. Uh, our hosts are going to be John and Vicki Ott, who are great art supporters here in town. And it's their building, right? Yes. Where, okay, I know what you they, mean. Where the funeral home used to be. We're trying not to <laughs> dwell on that history. It's going to be a new history for this building. And the atrium. Okay, the I didn't atrium. know that's what it's called. It's okay. going to have a lot of great features, so we're really excited for people to come in and see that and support the arts. Uh, we also use this time to honor a local arts volunteer or supporter. Our arts agencies uh, who are funded, they submit the nominations for you know maybe a staff member or a teaching artist or a long-time volunteer, uh, they submit those nominations to us, and we have a kind of selection committee who picks who would be honored that evening. So along with uh, unveiling the poster, we also honor uh, one of these agencies and their volunteers. Um, it's just a really fun evening with music and cocktails and s- small bites from you know maybe 30 different local restaurants. Um, and then our arts agencies are, are there as well with um, identification. So you can meet and mingle with um, the people who receive our support. Um, you can find out more information about that on our website. If you do comoarts.com, um, there's information about the event um, and how to buy tickets. We'll have those details coming together soon. So how do you choose the artwork that's unveiled each year? What's the process for that? So there is a, a selection committee that we usually piece together of the past poster winner. Uh, we loop in some other artists in town and a couple other people who, you know, we just kind of, who would be a good fit to to uh, kind of different backgrounds of people and people who see the arts. And then we look at um, our past collection. So what is something kind of new that hasn't been represented in, in the post? Uh, it's always trying to capture the vitality of mid-Missouri and keep it um, Columbia-focused um, and keep it mid-Missouri-focused. And to apply for that, you you are obviously a local artist. Uh, so it's a way, too, for us to support uh, local artists. They do get uh, compensated for us using their image on the works. And then we also sell the poster throughout the year, and that, again, helps with the funding for the Columbia Arts Fund. As you said, Kate Gray is the winner this year, and I know she's entered the contest many, many times. So what was it about her work this year that particularly appealed to the judges? One of the things we also asked for, not just the images, but a kind of written statement explaining 
Um, so I think part of it was not only was her artwork just exceptional as it usually is, um, but then her story on, you know, how she was inspired for this piece and it's, you know, I can't spoil it, but you know, it's a, <laughs> I, I think maybe a situation that many people have found themselves in when they're, you know, outdoors in the spring, summertime, and maybe the weather turns on you. And, you know, that I think was the, the root of her inspiration. She came back from this experience and just went to work on the canvas. So, um, I think that really aided in the visual imagery that then you see in her work. Um, so that tied together. It wasn't just the work it was that story behind it which most most art pieces have some kind of story behind it now back in the day the poster party Mm -hmm. as it used to be known was Mm -hmm. always held at a a private house which of course entailed an army of volunteers Mm -hmm. a very willing and generous homeowner and no doubt a giant cleaning bill after the fact right and and it was something magical you know about going to a private house Mm -hmm. despite the huge amount of work that it entailed <laughs> at your end. But nowadays it's usually held, as you said, in a public venue the last few years. It's been at Orr Street, it's been at the Art League in the Missouri mm-hmm. Theatre. It was in the new football the box or whatever you call East it. Wing. Yes. <laughs> the first year, I think yes. it's the first event that was ever right. held there. That was kind of exciting. But I wonder whether ever any discussion about it going back to a private home or have we moved beyond that era? Um we, we always the the planning event committee they, they bring it up year to year and we kind of look at the pros and cons. I think you kind of can max out the number of people who can attend a private home. So that is really we've grown it over the past several years. Um, once you get over, you know, two hundred and 50 people, it makes it a little bit more difficult to try to do the logistics in a home. Uh, And then there's just so many great new places out in the community, Um, like the atrium. We have the new Center for Missouri Studies going up, a new music building. So there's quite a few places we have our eye on for future years. So of course, we always come back to, well, would it make sense to have it in a home? But I think just the number of people who are now attending, um, it just has made sense to have it in in a little bit more accessible place for that. Just quickly, another high-profile program that you manage is the Traffic Box Art Project. When is the next opportunity for that coming up? So for our, again, uh, mid-Missouri artists are eligible to apply, we announce that box location application usually in January, at the beginning of the calendar year. Um, So over the course of the spring, those applications come in. Our Standing Committee on Public Art uh, goes through the applications and makes their recommendation. It goes to our commission and to city council for approval. And then that artist usually is working on completing the box in the summer, maybe fall months, depending on their schedule and the weather. So you can look out for the new box going up on the corner of 6th and Broadway. Um, But then if you're an interested artist, uh, sign up for, we have a call to artists section of our website and you can sign up to be sure to be on those emails and then look for that at the beginning of the year 2020 for the next location and opportunity. Have you announced who the artist is for this year? I don't know if we've made the announcement, but it's out there. It's Christine Dorr. Okay. And um, she's going to have a really great downtown-focused piece on the corner of Six and Broadway. Sometimes the artist paints directly on the box, and sometimes mm-hmm. it goes on a film that is applied to the box. What makes that determination? So it, we leave it up to the artist, and sometimes they are maybe more of a graphic artist. They've had kind of multimedia and computer graphic illustration and so really the only way for their design to make it onto the box would be to do a vinyl wrap so we've allowed that option um, over the past couple years but we also have 
artists who really want to get out there and paint it and spend the time doing it. And it takes a lot of time out on the street painting. Um, but I think I think it looks better. They really enjoy it, too. The people who stop them and talk with them. Um, that's a whole experience. So um, we're very pleased when they also choose to just get out there and paint it as well. My guest this week has been Sarah Dresser, manager of the Office of Cultural Affairs. You can find out more about the annual celebration of the Arts Party, which is on Thursday, August the 29th, by going to comoarts.com. Tickets cost from $60. Is that correct, Sarah? 50 for the lowest ticket. $50. And with all funds raised, going to support the Office of Cultural Affairs programming through the Community Arts Fund. And tickets are available right, right now. Right there. It's live. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for having me I knew we could get through a whole show by ourselves. And I haven't even got through half the questions I had for you. There is so much more. So I hope you will have me back. I would love to have you back again. You You are listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way into your diaries. In Ararock, it is opening a weekend at the Lyceum Theatre for the jukebox musical All Shook Up. There are two performances today and tomorrow at 2 and 8. Plus there is a 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday. However, I looked at the website this morning and most of the shows for this weekend at least are sold out. There are about three tickets left for Saturday night and two tickets left for the Sunday matinee. Next Tuesday's matinee is sold out and Wednesday's has two tickets left. So if you want to go, you might need to go next weekend. At the Columbia Entertainment Company, the musical comedy Hairspray is in its final weekend and it starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow. Plus there's a 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday and tickets are $14. In Macon, the Maples Rep Company has productions of the Full Monty and the Savannah Sipping Society this weekend. You can see the Full Monty at today is 2 p.m. matinee or tomorrow night. Meanwhile, the Savannah Sipping Society is on stage at 2 p.m. for both Saturday and Sunday's matinees. At Talking Horse Theatre, Pace Youth Theatre is taking over the stage this weekend for their production of 13, The Musical. There are evening performances tonight and tomorrow at 7, plus matinees at 2 on Saturday and Sunday, and tickets are 12 for adults and 10 for children. And at Rose Music Hall, the monthly comedy nights, Pints and Punchlines, hosted by Clayton Missler, is on stage tonight at nine and $3 gets you through the front door. Saturday night, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Hot Summer Nights season continues with a fully staged production of the opera Carmen, featuring the resident opera artists at the Missouri Theatre. Black tie or femme fatale red dresses are optional. Tickets are $35 and the curtain lifts at 7.30. At the Blue Note, Saturday night, Chump Change and Friends celebrate the life and music of their dearly departed leader and his musical legacy to Columbia with a tribute concert to John Big Babe Martin. A concert starts at 8 and tickets are $6. And at Rose Music Hall tomorrow night, you can catch the Hillbilly Heatwave show featuring Mountain Sprout, Whiskey for the Lady and the Barroom Billies. The show starts at 7 and tickets are $8. Sunday afternoon at 1, there is a blues jam at Cooper's Landing guess they must have dried out sunday evening at ragtag they are throwing themselves a birthday party there's a reception at six for members only before a free film for everyone at seven the film is still a secret and the free tickets are on a first come first seated basis and at shelter gardens on sunday evening you can hear sea rock city at 7 p.m as part of the summer long concerts in the garden series and that's a free concert Tuesday morning, the Museum of Art and Archaeology holds its regular sketch group. The group meets at 10am and new people are always welcome. Drawing pads, pencils and supplies are all provided and no RSVP is necessary. You can just turn up. Tuesday night, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra presents its annual patriotic 
patriotic patriotic pops as part of the orchestra's hot summer nights season. Tickets are $35 and the concert is at the Missouri Theatre. And at Mizzou's Studio 4, the MU Summer Rep Theatre presents the second of this season's comedies in concert with a production called How to Catch a Sasquatch, written by Mizzou's Lainey Van Sant. These are shows that are rehearsed and performed all on the same day and tickets are free. You can celebrate America's 243rd birthday a day early at Rose Park next Wednesday with a night of American bluegrass featuring Mercer and Johnson, Julian Davis and the Situation, River Ghost Review, Boone Howlers and Saris Waltman. Evening gets underway at 5.30 and tickets are $5. And next Thursday, July the 4th, America has an all-day birthday celebration at the Les Bourgeois A-Frame with live music, kid stuff and an evening fireworks display. And back in Columbia, the annual Fire in the Sky celebrations start with live music at 6 30 on both the Luckies and Flat Branch stages, plus there'll be kids' activities and crafts and food trucks, plus fireworks exploding into the night sky at 9.15pm. Happy birthday, America. You've been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagen. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.